to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5. So before we read the Word, I just want to ask you a few questions. I mean, we're hearing all kinds of crazy things in the news these days from, you know, the rapid, scary development of AI to, you know, the continued impact of climate change and as we sang about even, and I alluded to earlier, the wars that are underway. And it kind of raises the question, so how's it all going to end? How will it all end? How will human history and planet Earth come to an end? You know, when I was a kid, we were actually worried that there was a coming ice age because that's what scientists were predicting in the mid-70s. And that was, you know, living in South Carolina where we rarely saw snow was kind of a cool thing to think that winter and the snow line might move further south, but then you kept listening to the reports. It was terrifying. Like, there are going to be big glaciers that just kind of, like, take over the whole world again. Well, now it's climate change of a different kind. And we're worried about the whole earth, you know, overheating to the point where a human population can't live. And the way it's being reported, artificial intelligence may do us in before the earth can actually heat up to that scary point, right? And assuming the aliens and UFOs that are now being widely reported don't get us first, uh, just this Thursday, Fortune magazine reported, here's the, the headline that caught my attention, almost half of CEOs fear AI could destroy humanity five to ten years from now. Great. Should probably have another cup of coffee and a donut. And then there are the religious prophets and doomsday preppers who predict the apocalypse is coming. And they're not worried so much about climate change, but the Illuminati or the deep state or the blood moons. Do you remember that? 2014, 2015. And there were some prominent preachers even who may have pushed that a little too far because obviously it's 2023 and we're still here. I remember as a child listening to a vinyl record by a popular evangelist of that day who specialized in prophecy, and the particular record that came to my mind as I was thinking through this had a blood-red jacket um, cover and the, the bold words on the front, the coming war with Russia. And I would put that record on my parents' old stereo and listen to it and tremble with awe and fear and wonder when is this war going to happen? Because that man said it's soon. And we have to guard our hearts, you know, from the extremes, but the reality is ordinary people like us stand in the middle of all this information overload, and we, we say to ourselves, what should we do? And some of you, even when I raise that, are like, man, is my 12-month food supply and gold coin stash and 1,000 rounds of ammo enough? <laughs> and I'm here to tell you it's not. But never fear. And some of you are at the other end of the spectrum saying, well, maybe I should buy an electric vehicle and quit having babies and and, and stop using electronic banking. It's okay. It's okay because we actually believe, for good reasons, not only that Jesus is coming back, but we believe that Jesus is king. And what he created, which includes this tiny little speck we call earth, in this vast universe that we barely know anything about. What he created, he sustains and upholds by his powerful word. Back in the first century, the Thessalonian saints were also concerned about the end of the world. And apparently they had even asked some questions to Paul. Remember, he had spent time with them. He he and Silvanus and Timothy had been there for a short duration. Persecution erupted. They had to abandon the town quickly. And so he's writing this letter back to them. And so we come to a section here in 1 Thessalonians 5 where he seems to be addressing not only a question but a deep concern for for the Thessalonians 
uh, like us, we're saying, what's going to happen? Now, let's listen to how Paul addresses this concern. So you follow along as I read 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, that the day should surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Let's pray together. Father, your word is life. Thank you that it is living truth. It's powerful. You have designed it with power to penetrate to the deepest recesses of our being. And we ask that through your word today, you would cut to those places within us that need to be shaped, remolded, corrected, and strengthened. We pray, Spirit of God, that you who are the divine teacher, for apart from you there is no understanding of this holy word, It is not a matter of our exercising intellectual powers to grasp this truth. There is a divine work that needs to be done. Dear Spirit of God, please come and teach us. Guard us from wrong conclusions. Guard me from speaking anything that would be confusing, that would harm your people, that would even discredit your name and glory. And we pray that this would be a day where the confident expectation of our Savior's return would be not only at the forefront of our thoughts, but that it would be a living hope within us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I I think most people have a concern for the end of history, or at least the end of their lives, but to focus it into the context of 1 Thessalonians, we're actually, like the Thessalonians, concerned about the Lord's return. Our concern, as Paul is about to explain to us, has its right place, but there's also a right perspective. He, and you notice this as we read through it. He's not actually interested in answering the question of the whens. And uh, sometimes we get hung up on the timing. Our concern is not of chronological understanding. The Thessalonians seem to be struggling with a couple of things. Let's review so we can put these things together. And I so appreciate Matt's careful work through the last half of chapter 4 
uh, last week. Remember, they were concerned about what's, what's happened to our loved ones who have died. And Paul gives them perspective. Their particular concern was that somehow those loved ones who were already in the grave would miss the return of Christ. And he says they're not going to miss it. At the last trumpet, when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will be raised first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So he answered concern number one very powerfully and sweetly. Their second concern seems to be, but what about the end of the world? And that's where we are. And so he says, now concerning the times and seasons, he uses two terms commonly used throughout the New Testament that refer to the end of human history. God's people want to know. If you go back to the Old Testament and read through Daniel's prophecy, who was given tremendous insights through God himself, through angelic messengers, Daniel the prophet asks in chapter 12, verse 6, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? And then he goes on in verse 8 to say, I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So there's a saint of God who we all admire and even should follow him to the extent that he was following God and faithfully serving him. He wants to know. And God says, it's not for you to know. If you remember the disciples asking Jesus in Act, it's recorded in Acts 1, verse 6, what, what's going to be the end? When is all this going to happen? And Jesus says to them in verse 7 of Acts 1, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And Jesus sh- shifts the focus to the kingdom mission they were on, scattering into all the world, proclaiming the good news that Christ has lived and died and risen again so that people might be saved from their sins. Well, the Thessalonians wanted to know. And you know what, friend? If you say this morning, I'd like to know, you're in really good company. But the answer from Old Testament to New still puts us in the same place. God, in his wisdom, has chosen to keep the chronology secret. But he does tell us some important things. And so while you may be concerned about the timing, there's a greater concern that that the Lord pushes to the forefront through what Paul is writing. It's not about chronology. It's It's a spiritual concern that ought to occupy our attention, spiritual preparation specifically. Look at what he says in verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, and I'm going to come back to that concept, the day of the Lord, because that's really important for us. But he says, you're fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's the first analogy, like a thief in the night. And I think Paul is just echoing what the Lord Jesus himself had taught to his disciples. It's recorded in Matthew 24, verse 43, where he says, Know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. There's our concept of preparation. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. When I was... um, or I should say when our daughter Haley was a baby, I, don't, I, don't, I think this was before Seth was born, but we had a family, kind of a family reunion down at Hilton Head Island. Um, it's a spot that our family vacationed many, many times. One particular afternoon during Haley's nap time, which all little ones need a nap time, and I always thought it's a great excuse for dads to take naps too. It's part of what vacation is for. But I volunteered, I sacrificed to stay at home or in the, in the house um, 
that some other members of our family had rented and took a nap, and we both slept without interruption. And I thought it was a great afternoon until later in that day when one of my sisters realized that some of her jewelry and a camera were missing from the very room where Haley and I had slept. And I had not stolen it. Um, I was sure of that. And I'm not much of a sleepwalker, so we ruled out some other options. And then two nieces, young nieces, who had also stayed behind while the rest of the family had uh, gone out to the beach, I think. Two young nieces who stayed behind said, well, there was that guy who came by the house. (laughs) Yes? That guy? Tell us more. Yeah, he came in and walked around, and as he left, you know, said, don't tell anyone. And it, you know, the, the horror that came over my soul that he had come into the very room where Haley and I were sleeping, and I thought how kind God was to just keep me fast asleep, because I don't know what I would have done, uh, you know, if I had awakened to see a thief in the room. No thief ever gives advance warning. That's the whole point, right? If I had known in what part of the afternoon that thief was coming, I would have certainly stayed awake and done everything to prevent the house from being broken into. Well, the Lord is telling us something about his return and that for some, it will catch them totally by surprise. They'll be totally unprepared for this. And the Lord goes on in verse four to say of of his people, you are not in darkness. You're you're not in spiritual darkness where you don't know this or understand this. And, And Paul actually uses the term brothers there to reinforce this is for those who are in the faith. He says, you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. And and there's the concept of surprise without warning. I was surprised later that day to realize a thief had entered the very room where Haley and I were sleeping. And you know, the day of the Lord is going to catch many people completely off guard. Now hold that thought and look at the second analogy that he draws. Verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So here's the second thought. It will also be sudden with no escape. Now, every mom who's gone through this understands that you know it's coming. And and that's why when a, a woman who's expecting a child begins to meet with a doctor, they'll even set a due date. But everybody knows. It may not actually happen on that particular date. You just know that at the end of nine months, you know, this process is going to begin. And when it does, there's no stopping it. It's inevitable. And Jesus is making the point through the Apostle Paul that his return will be sudden and there will be no escape. Notice in verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, one author writes, the words need not describe idyllic times, as if they really are, you know, seasons of peace and safety, but rather there is, according to this commentator, what we might see as an arrogant or self-deceived people. I've been reading through Jeremiah in my morning Bible reading, and Jeremiah repeatedly was dueling with false prophets who kept telling Israel, and this is while the enemy is making plans Uh, to come in and destroy them, knocking at the door, and Jeremiah is warning them, if you don't turn from your sins, Babylon is coming, and they are going to lay this land waste. And the false prophets who ultimately persecuted Jeremiah and got him thrown in prison kept standing up saying, Jeremiah is wrong. 
we are the people of God. We worship in the temple that he told us to build. It's peace. And they kept saying, peace, 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 peace. It's just raw arrogance in Jeremiah's day to ignore the call of God to turn from sin and back to him. And you know, there are going to be many in this day who've heard similar calls from family members, from friends, from pastors and, and Bible teachers to repent. And they're like, no, I'm not doing that. I don't need to do that. Who is God? I don't believe in God. There may be a thousand excuses and there's this self-deception that it really is a moment of peace and security. But when, when the birth pains begin, there's no stopping it. The Lord's return will suddenly and for some disastrously arrive and there will be no escape. Are you ready? Are you ready? You can be. The Lord wants you to be. Look at verse four. Because this is the focus. It's not about chronology. It's about preparation. And the Lord gives very specific commands. First of all, I, I want to characterize a couple of commands in, in this passage. Remember what you know. Now remember, this is Paul's answer to the Thessalonians who are concerned about the end of the age and the Lord's return and what it all means. And he had used the, the two words in verse two. You are fully aware He's like, I, I really don't need to talk much about this because you already know. But then look at verse four. You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. That is, you've been given the illumination, the light of God's truth. Remember what you know. Secondly, remember who you are. And I love this. Look at verse five. For you are all children of light, children of the day. Now focus, first of all, on the fact that they are children of of God. That's what this is pointing to. It's spiritual light. It's spiritual truth. God in his kindness had come to them. And remember what Paul said uh, earlier, commending them, that they had turned from a life of idolatry and all kinds of sinfulness to the living God. And he had brought them in. Multiple times in this letter, Paul refers to their God and Father. He is all of that for us when we come to him. And so Paul is saying, remember what you know and remember who you are. You're God's children. And as his children, we are privileged to live this life with the knowledge of what's coming. Oh, we can't tell you the day or the hour of his coming, but we may be sure that he is coming. Another author writes, whether we are ready for Christ's coming or not depends on whether we are still in the darkness, spiritually speaking, or already belong to the light. It is only if we are in the light that we will not be taken by surprise. And so I ask again, dear friend, are you ready? Are you living in the light of God's truth? Or do you stand idly or carelessly by saying, eh, it's not really my thing, it's not for me, and I, you know, I, I try to be a good person and I hope one day if, if there is a heaven and I stand before him that, you know, God would let me in. Dear friend, don't take that chance. He is coming and you will stand before him one day. He's not only our savior and our king, our Lord, our shepherd, our friend. He is judge of the entire universe. Every soul will stand before him. Now look at verse six. So then... In light of these realities, what you know and who you are, there, there are three commands here that I want to focus on. And, and I want to go ahead and lay groundwork for next week as we come to the end of the chapter because then out of this bigger discussion on the Lord's return, Paul's actually going to launch into just a, a, a barrage, if you will, a, a rapid fire uh, instruction. 21 commands, I think it is, not including these three. 
in light of all of this stuff, then live this way. Here's what you ought to do. Now, let's look at the, the first few here. We, we are called to remember God's commands, and I ran out of room on the slide there, so let's just go build another big one here, okay? First of all, keep awake. Don't go to sleep. Verse 6, so then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. A couple of thoughts here. Let's just combine them. Keep awake and be sober. There's an echo of what the Lord had said, and it's a long time ago now, but when we preached through the Gospel of Mark and came to the section where Jesus deals with the end times, one of the commands he repeated to his disciples was stay awake, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. That just means you need to be spiritually alert. That means as you engage with the world in the day-to-day business, uh, your education, as you try to raise your family or care for those loved ones or friends that are around you, as you read the headlines, all of it you do through the filter of God's truth, trying to interpret and understanding what's going on around you in light of God's revealed truth. You don't fall asleep. You don't let the adversary lull you into some false sense of security uh, and you don't try to find security you know through the next election cycle going the way that you hope it will or peace being declared uh, in Ukraine or the price of gas you know coming back to a reasonable place or inflation dropping all of those things may or may not happen but your peace is not contingent upon those things you stay awake you you keep awake and stay alert in light of God's truth being sober is contrasted with those who get drunk. And if you look at the characteristics of those who are asleep and get drunk, they do so at night. And the nighttime is, is a moment where you, you can't see as well. And I think if you would meditate on this for a moment, you'd begin to recognize that the, the, the way believers live should stand in strong contrast to the way those who are not believers choose to live their lives, and many of them actually are in a kind of spiritual drunken state, uh, partly because they're terrified, and some of you who've maybe struggled with alcohol or had family members who did uh, or do know that sometimes you use alcohol just to anesthetize your soul to deeper pain or fear or anxiety, some of what's unfolding around us in this pride month really is kind of breathtaking people who are looking for some kind of sense of joy or belonging or affirmation. And, and you, if, you, if you listen closely and you cut through some of the bizarre and, and scary, you, you will actually hear souls crying out for a kind of peace. They are living in darkness, drunk on what the world tells them or offers them, but lost, lost as they can be. Look at verse 8, Paul goes on to say, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. And the word sober really has the idea of self-controlled. Let us curb those powerful emotions that rise within us, whether it be out of fear or anxiety or uncertainty. What allows us to do that? Well, that's what brings us to the third part, and I'll just use these two words to describe it, armor up. Paul says, having put on the breastplate of faith, 
That's, this, this is where our self-control com- comes from. It's not just a matter of disciplining yourself. I will be controlled. I will live in control. I will think controlled thoughts. No. All of that is tied to the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Is there, are you saying, oh, that, that sounds familiar? Yeah. Remember the beginning of the, of the letter itself, he talked about our faith, hope, and love. And he's returning to some of those powerful themes. It, the, the armor... As, as we see these two pieces, is a little different from what Paul wrote of in Ephesians. It reminds us that what God does to protect us is, is beautiful and comprehensive. And so in Ephesians 6, he describes a breastplate of righteousness. Here he describes it as faith and love. Faith in God who created us and saved us. Love for him, his love more importantly for us. That's what's going to guard your heart, the immaterial part of you that is so vulnerable. And then for a helmet, the hope of salvation. We all know that helmets guard the head, and we want to guard our heads because there's, there's gray matter inside that's really important uh, to being able to live and function as God designed you to live. So, of course, you would put a helmet on in a, in a time of combat, but this is the hope of salvation that protects our minds. Now remember, Christian hope is our confident expectation that God will accomplish everything that he has promised to do. He will will accomplish all his holy will and that as a result, we will experience full and ultimate good. So if you want to reduce that, Christian hope is a confident expectation for good. But it's not just random good. It's good specifically located in Jesus Christ and all that he is doing. So do you see the connection between what you think and what you believe and the way you live your life? And I, I continue to sorrow the fact that there's a whole generation that's been brought up, first of all, being told uh, you are the product of random chance. You're really nothing more than an amalgamation of cells that over time kind of came together and somehow, some way, reached an agreement that some of them would turn into big toes and little toes and you know, right on up to the top of your head. But you're, you're here by chance. You're headed into oblivion because this life is all there is and when you die, you just cease to exist. So, you know, better live it up. There is no God who actually could remedy the evil that we all live with and doesn't that frustrate us and why can't we just all get our act together and, you know, get rid of the bad guys and, live together in some kind of self-created utopia. There's a whole generation that if, if, if it continues the way it is, will just descend into greater confusion and chaos. And, and we're even seeing some of that right now because if there is no God, well then I, I, I not only am free to determine my own destiny and identity and all that, I have to because I can't trust you to do that. So I, I'm gonna do it. And God says, no, I, I want you to armor up because I am who I say I am, and I am in the process of doing everything that I've promised to do. Well, that presses us specifically to uh, the last portion, and that is our hope for the Lord's return. Now, it's interesting. This is, this is a two-edged sword, I could put it that way. It cuts painfully in one direction. It cuts beautifully in the other direction, but it's the same truth, and I want you to see this. Verse 9 says, For God has not destined or appointed us to wrath. 
You got to tie this back to chapter 3 and verse 3 where Paul had written to the Thessalonians that we are actually destined for affliction and suffering, but that's different from wrath. God's people will experience affliction. They will experience suffering for following Jesus, but that's very different from wrath, and you can't confuse the two. We're not going to, at least at this point, we don't have plans to go into 2 Thessalonians, but in that second letter that the apostle Paul wrote, apparently because of the intensity of the persecution and affliction that the Thessalonians were suffering, some of them were beginning to wonder, well, maybe this is the tribulation. And so he corrects it, and he's like, I know it's really hard, but this isn't it, because you're not destined for wrath. Now, what is God's wrath? It's important for us to define it. Wrath is the punitive outworking of God's righteous indignation at sin. It is the punitive outworking. What do we mean by that? Well, there is, there is a divine justice that begins to unfold. Punitive is just another word for punishment. And we have seen a number of scriptures. I've tried to remind you even lately, nobody gets away with anything. And either your sin and mine is dealt with in Jesus at the cross or we're gonna have to personally uh, pay for it in the presence of God one day. Those are the two options. It's either Jesus does it for you or you do it for yourself. But God is a just judge. He will punish all sin. And wrath is the punitive outworking of God's, look at the next part, righteous indignation at sin. God is vastly different from you and me. Some of us just have pet peeves where there's stuff that just irritates the fire out of us. And if somebody does it, says it, thinks it, you know, communicates it, man, we're just, we're just lit. And sometimes temper tantrums flare from that, ugly words come out of our mouths, harmful actions. God doesn't throw temper tantrums. He doesn't react to the world around him the way in you and I do. Actually, there's a, there's a settledness about his wrath. And the word even tells us, 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And we sometimes make the tragic mistake of confusing his patience with his unwillingness or even his inability to bring his judgment. God is indignant right now with all sin. He's holding back the release of his wrath giving time to people like you and me to repent. Think of the kinds of things that stir your righteous indignation. We could come up with a long list, couldn't we? There's, there's all kinds of evil in the world that ought to stir our souls where we are good and angry. From the innocent children who suffer at the hands of human traffickers, to the celebration of immorality and perversion on the White House lawn this week, from the neglect of the poor and the miscarriage of justice in many of our courts, even the exploitation of religious power and authority where faithful congregants or faithful followers are harmed, sometimes irreparably, humanly speaking. I mean, th that's just a small sample. Now, you think of all the things that stir the righteous indignation in your soul and then multiply that by the millions upon millions of evil acts and sinful thoughts and deeds that people have committed through the ages in defiance of the lordship and holiness of the most high God who is just and righteous in all his ways. And you might just beginning to glimpse 
the righteous indignation. So when the Bible speaks of the day of the Lord, it is speaking of a unique season where this wrath of God is poured out. Let's go to a couple of key passages. The first is 2 Thessalonians 1. You're just across the page from it. As Paul resumes some of this theme with the Thessalonians, he says, since indeed considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That's just one of multiple New Testament passages where it describes the day of the Lord in very sobering, if not grim, terms. Go back to the book of Isaiah. It's an Old Testament prophet. He's one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament era. And for all that he wrote and all that he preached and proclaimed in the days of his life, very few people actually believed him and responded. He is the most quoted Old Testament prophet in the New Testament letters. God gave him specific insight and he recorded some of that in Isaiah 13, verses 6 through 13. Just listen. And I, I will not make many comments. It just doesn't need comment. But in describing the day of the Lord, Isaiah writes, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind rarer than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Friend, are you awake or are you still sleeping? Are you living in the light of God's truth or are you walking in the darkness of your own man-made system? Are you living soberly in the self-control of the spirit and God's truth or are you just staggering through life like a drunken person? Now, praise God, Paul's word to those who put their faith in Jesus is, we are not destined for wrath. The day of the Lord that we've just read a little portion of is not a day that God is preparing for you, dear saint. You've not been appointed to that. No, rather, let's go back to the text. We are not destined for wrath. We are actually destined for salvation. So go back to verse 9 but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Now, that word obtain means you're going to acquire real possession of it. I continue to marvel at how the economy has just done things that nobody 
could fully see coming just a few years ago. And one of the challenges, and you who are younger and starting out establishing your own homes, and even some of you who aren't uh, just in, in the early stages of life are saying, who can afford to buy a home? And when you finally, you know, squeeze out those pennies and you tighten the budget down to the place and you're able to sign on the dotted line, and, and even though you're just taking out a loan, you're not really the full owner of it, but when you walk in there and you say, we, we've acquired possession, that's a great moment, isn't it? And I know some of you feel right now like, are, are we really going to get the salvation that Jesus is promising? Is he really going to come again? Are we going to see him face to face? Are we, are we going to be reunited with those loved ones who've, who've died in faith and been placed into the ground? Is it really going to happen? And he's saying, you are destined for it. You are appointed to take possession of this salvation. And that means everything that, that Jesus has purchased I love the phrase, through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. And that's a combination of his very personal name, Jesus, and a couple of important titles on either side, Lord and Christ. Lord means that he is the sovereign one. There is no greater king or authority in all the universe. It is the Lord Jesus who has secured your salvation and blessing. And then the title Christ at the tail end of that speaks of his of his messiahship he is the uniquely chosen one of god and nobody else is messiah in the way that jesus is messiah the lord jesus christ it's through him and all that he is that we have this hope of salvation but then paul says in verse 10 and reminds us he's the one who died for us how can you be sure that there's no more wrath remaining for you? You know why? Because all of that wrath for your sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross, and God does not double bill parties for the same sin. He didn't take the full payment from Jesus and then turn your direction and say, I need a little something from you to expect a bill next month. That would be an unjust accounting system, wouldn't it? And you know, even as we read through Isaiah 13 and the, the day of darkness and the stars of the heavens and their constellations giving no light. You know, the, the sky went dark when Jesus hung on the cross. In part because when God's wrath falls, that's the kind of cataclysmic events that begin to unfold. And that's part of the demonstration that Jesus was the wrath-bearing substitute Savior for sinners like you and me. Oh, we're destined for salvation. And the cross of Christ is specifically in view. Do you know this morning that in his death he paid the debt of your sins in full? Do you know this morning that in his death he bore God's wrath in full for you? Do you know that in his death he purchased your salvation fully and freely? That included not only deliverance from sin with all its dread consequences, the guilt, the fear, the shame, all of that, but it also included the preservation of your life in order that you might step into the full experience of glory that never ends. You're destined for salvation. And then he says, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And I think he's coming all the way back to some of the thoughts in chapter four. What about, what about our loved ones who are dead? He says, oh, they're just asleep for a little while. So whether you are asleep as those who've died in faith or you're one of those who's still awake at the coming of Christ, the whole point is Jesus did all of that in order that we might live with him forever. What a hope. Well, where does that leave us? Very simply, we encourage and edify one another with these truths. Verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up 
to build up is a spiritual concept of edifying. And he says, just as you are doing, but don't stop doing it. it it's easy to gather and talk about all the bad stuff that's going on in the world, and, and, and there's a place for processing some of that, but for the believer, we always and, and, and should inevitably turn the conversation to powerful truth like this. Yes, it's bad, but Jesus is coming. Yes, I never thought I'd live to see this day, but we are destined to obtain salvation. I sure do wonder what's going to happen tomorrow or next year or, yeah, well, one thing is sure, Christ is coming. That's a very different narrative from a lot of the hand-wringing that goes on the major news networks, right? And, and we get swept into that so quickly. Encourage and build one another up just as you were doing. Are you ready? In light of this truth, that's why I say, you know, you, you, could, you could store 10,000 rounds of ammunition, have a million dollars in gold bullion and another million in silver coins. You could have seven years supply that in your mind will carry you through the entire tribulation. It's not enough. And actually, I, I'm firmly persuaded because the tribulation is a, a season of wrath it's not designed for the believers. It's part of the reason I remain a pre-trib, pre-millennialist in my eschatology. I do think I'll be out of here. Jesus didn't go through the horrible things he did just to step back from it and go, you know, let's see how creative you can be. Another flashback to when I was a kid. There was a popular movie. I didn't see it when I was a child, probably because we didn't go to movies when I was a kid. That's another conversation story. It was called Red Dawn. Some of you are old enough to remember that. It's awesome teenagers i mean finally the russians invaded just like that evangelist on the record had said they would parachute in the middle of you know the u.s and start taking everybody prisoner but not these teenagers and they load up their you know four by four pickup and head up into the hills and they got guns and food and you know they basically saved the world you don't have to have a strategy for that kind of thing because jesus is the savior of the world and you can only be ready as you are in relationship with him are you ready Let's pray together. Father, would you cause our Christian faith to be a vivid display of real hope? You've answered the most important questions, and while you haven't answered the question of when, when will this happen? You've answered the most important questions, first of all, through the who of Jesus Christ, and you even answered the question of what when you told us where we're headed. Forgive us for our carelessness. And there's some here this morning who are in a spiritually sleepy, drunken stupor. The Spirit of God, would you show kindness to them and lead them to wake up, to repent and believe? Others of us have been lulled into a, a carelessness. We know these things, but we've forgotten the power of this truth. Some here have even forgotten who they really are, children of light, children of the Most High God. Would you remind us on this day? Would you grow this hope, deepen its roots in our own souls that the fruit of our lives would be evidence of this living hope, this strong expectation? Give us the assurance that we are not destined for wrath, but we are, in fact, destined for glory, for eternal life. We are destined for the very presence of Jesus, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Spirit of God, do your work in your way. 
for your glory, for our greatest good, for the joy of those even who at this moment are still in darkness. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.